Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Paul Sweeney. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Visit the Bloomberg Podcast channel on YouTube to see the show weekday mornings from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern from our global headquarters in New York City. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Seema Shaw with us right now, uh, global strategist for principles. She's just absolutely lovely about the overall picture. Seema, is there a global picture? Is there a correlation and in interdependencies between all these different forces that leads to an optimism on American markets? Optimism on stock market, optimism on total return in bonds. Well, good morning. It's a great question. So, you know, as you said, from a global market perspective, a global economic perspective, you've got very, very different pictures starting to emerge. Um, you've got the UK, Europe, Japan and increasingly China in recession or stagnating. And then on the other side, you've got the US doing incredibly well. So one of our questions is, you know, first of all, of course, what is driving that? And I think something is there about the geopolitical tensions, which are really weighing on um, on on the various economies. You have China's struggles, which inevitably, given how open that economy is, is going to be leading to some um, yeah. impact on Europe. But on the other hand, the US is pretty closed. Um, it's actually benefiting, I think. You know, when we look across the global markets, we consider US exceptionalism being maintained for this year. And of course, there could be some damp pressures that don't entirely escape unscathed right. from global weakness. But overall, this is certainly right. another year where the US certainly comes up. Trump. And the reason I brought that, that uh, idea up, uh, mm -hmm. Paul, is because yep. I'll steal from anyone. <laughs> yeah. Greg Darko over at Ernst & Young, EY, has the chart of my day, and it just shows this shocking U.S. exceptionalism from 2021. Yep. It's not new. I mean, it, it seems as a chief global strategist of principal asset management, kind of how do you think about, when you talk to your clients, where do you, th can you really talk to them about, constructively about markets outside of the U.S. right now? Well, so I think there are a couple of pockets. Right. So typically within emerging markets, we're we're really thinking about Latin America. That yep. is, you know, you've got the fundamentals in tune, you've got the valuations, because at least, you know, if you're looking at Brazil and Chile, you've actually rarely seen those markets cheaper than they are today. Uh, and then they're also in tune with a lot of the secular themes that you're seeing come through for the market. So reshoring um, EV vehicles and the, the natural resources that go into that, a lot of that comes from Latin America. So that's where things coincide and they look pretty good. But I agree with you. It is a fairly tough conversation with clients at the moment to talk about international markets and even with portfolio managers. You know, one question that we've had over and over again from an asset allocation perspective is PM asking us, you know, is there ever going to be a time where I'm going to allocate to Europe 
uh, overweight relative to the US for more than just a tactical trade, more than just two or three months. Uh, and we went away, we did all the, the, the research. And the thing that's coming about is you have three criteria for that to happen where Europe really outperforms the US, or at least US exception do, exceptionalism doesn't last for more than a couple of months. One is that you have to have US economic growth, of course, weaker than the rest of the world, somewhat unlikely at this point in time. Uh, you need to have some kind of trade breakthrough. So think about WTO and the emergence of China. Well, then at that point, the US exception didn't really work out so well at that point. And then the third thing is, is that you need some kind of additional secular driver, some kind of technology which isn't really focused on the US. And on all three of those fronts, this year doesn't look particularly positive for international markets. So for that reason right now, and actually even if I'm looking at it the next year or so, it does seem to us that something significant needs to change for the US market to no longer be at the forefront of the equity market gains. So Simon, one of the things here we, as we look to European markets is just valuation. The valuation is so compelling for European markets vis-a-vis the U.S. for a variety of reasons, including you know the the relative lower weighting of tech in Europe than it is in the U.S. Is that is that a kind of a, a trap, a little bit of a value trap, looking at Europe as a as a value opportunity? I, I think unfortunately it is. Um, I've used those words value trap myself for for when we're talking about Europe, and it does look very attractive. But from a fundamental perspective, the economy really is struggling. Um, you know, we look out over the rest of the year and for sure ECB rate cuts will come and it will become with some kind of an urgency, which should add some um, some drive into the European economy that is likely to happen. But for example, if we look out even further out to towards uh, towards the end of the year, concerns around the US elections and what the impact could be on Europe are really weighing on investors because they worry They look from a defense standpoint. If um, anything were to change with regards to NATO, with regards to Ukraine spending, well, then Europe is sitting at the forefront with potential right. concerns around natural gas prices returning back to the market. If you think about the trade tensions with China, well, again, who is another major loser from that? It's a European economy. So we are looking at it as a bit of value trap. Um, the only change to that may be if technology were to really disappoint um, and that starts to drag down the market. We're not thinking that's likely at this point. Though. Seema, it's Synergy Tuesday. Is that what 2024 looks like? Did everybody that's not making it decides they got a mate to take out a billion here, a billion there? Well, look, in, in 2024, our key message to investors has been, it's tough Q1. It might even be a tough second quarter of the year, but we need to be getting prepared to deploy your assets. You know, look at where are the value opportunities, uh, where the value and the fundamentals are meeting, of course, not just the value traps, uh, because we do think that the second half of the year is gonna be a lot more constructive than what we're seeing right now. And this is a good opportunity for investors to be thinking about where are those synergies um, and where can they start? You know, they've got a bit of time. I haven't got much time, but they have got some time to start deploying yeah. those assets. And it's very important that they start doing so right now. Uh, thank you, Seema Shah, uh, with us this morning with Principal to give us an update. Lots more equity coverage here as you uh, look at the mystery of the stock market. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. such an important uh, interview. Um, she's so young, I don't want to say legend, but Christina Moore is a legend. She's vice chairman M&A at a small bank called Citigroup, and we're thrilled she's with us today. But she has a deep, trenchant experience in the ebbs and flows of what we do, economics, finance, investment, and folding it into international relations. There's the great story of Lawrence Summers sitting for his oral and the professor said, well, we survived that. You had it on the other side of it. He had the chalk in his hand. Stan Fisher told me once that Paul Samuel was so angry at him that he grabbed the chalk out of Stanley Fisher's hands and threw it against the board. What was it like having Lawrence Summers as your teaching assistant at a small Charles River school? <laughs> that must have been like the worst in the world. It was an honor, actually. He's so smart. And he's so practical that he made economics easy for even those of us who were kind of... Did he grade like Steve Roach at Yale where there was a quality C? <laughs> I wouldn't know. I didn't get close to that side of the scale. <laughs> okay. Why do we know that? Christina Moore with us here on the M&A uh, of, of, of the day. What a perfect day to have you in here. It's Synergy yep. Thursday. It's Merger well. Monday. Yes. What, well, it's Tuesday, though. But <laughs> She's working a five-day week at Citigroup, yes. Jane. Just so you know, she didn't take Monday off. Let me get to the chase. Does synergy work? Yes. I think that what you've seen in the last half of last year and what you're seeing in the first two months of this year is the return of the corporate acquisition. Corporate, um, corporate acquirers were about 80% of the market, 80% of the market so far this year. We're about 70% of the North American market last year. This is all driven by the need to demonstrate growth and importantly, the need to show greater margins. Let me back up for a minute and explain this. Um, if we look at some of the work we've done internally on what drives stock price performance and returns, it, growth is probably, superior growth, is probably responsible for about two turns on an EBITDA basis for market, market performance in 2023. But margin improvement is another two So that's terms. synergies. Are they, do you see, come on, there's like three major mergers today, including the Barclays at mm -hmm. Reorg, which I don't want you to comment on. But the bottom line is they got to cut Paul billions. I, I mean, they got to cut billions of, of costs, <laughs> right? I think that, I haven't seen the numbers yet on the Capital One Discover merger today, but certainly there, 
cost savings and cost synergies, utilizing the platform more, more aggressively are an important part of what drives the economics, in particular, of stock transactions, such as, say, the, um, the Capital One Discover merger. But the other part of the synergy equation, and you don't, it doesn't really get talked about in the announcement, it really doesn't get valued as much by the analysts, but an important part of the synergy equation are revenue and platform synergies. And I think that's one of the things that you will see in some of these large acquisitions, both on the energy side on the, and you know, in, on the healthcare side. Certainly, um, I think that'll be an important part of the acquisition that was announced today. So Christine, on the Bloomberg terminal, we have a great function, MAGO. And every time I see a trade cross the tape, I go MAGO to see which of my friends on Wall Street are getting paid. Now I don't look at that anymore. Now I look at see who the legal representatives are because I think they are more important than the bankers today because I've got some regulators down in Washington, D.C. that I don't think they're very merger friendly. Talk to us about the regulatory environment for getting deals approved. It seems like the, you know, the regulators are really looking at a lot, of, a lot of deals, a lot of industries. Sure. I think that obviously the, this administration's level of enforcement has been more active. They have put forward new merger guidelines for the first time since 2010 that we've seen a change in those merger guidelines. They're certainly more aggressive. They have lower levels of concentration, certainly lower market share targets, and indeed take some novel approaches to enforcement such as um, concentrate, um, compound trans acquirers, some aspects of vertical integration. So certainly the DOJ and the FTC have become more vocal and more active. But when we actually look at what's happened over the past year, when, when these um, challenges have been taken to court, you've seen the courts react a little differently. You've seen the courts adhering a little more directly to the 2010 level of 2010 guidelines. So I think it's become a little clearer what one, you know, kind of what the, what the cans and cannots do, but certainly I would always hire a good lawyer if I were doing a deal. <laughs> exactly. And certainly in this, in this environment, if you're doing the kind of horizontal mergers that are yep. the flavor of the day, you certainly want to make sure that you have the right antitrust counsel. Well, at Capital One's got Wachtell Lipton and uh, Discover's got Sullivan Cromwell, so two pretty good firms right there. So talk to us here about 2024. I mean, are we going to have more activities simply because the market anticipates rates coming down and maybe some of your clients are going to be a little bit more inclined to, to, to be aggressive? Certainly. I think that, you know, I think there are three parts of the merger market, all of which have the prospect for improving in 2024. First, we've talked a little bit about the strategic acquirers. I think that the combination of the increased corporate confidence, the fact that what you're seeing among the strategic acquirers is the real benefits that the larger strategics, in particular those that have like A ratings and above, have in terms of benefit of the cost mm -hmm. of capital. They have cheaper costs of right. capital and the ability but to out-earn almost anyone. To me, that's the heart of the matter. Nassim Taleb says the gravity's return to the market, including your M&A world. The answer is money was nothing. Dire straits. <laughs> okay, yeah. now money costs something. That's going to have us with an M&A frenzy, what I called last year the great American roll-up. Isn't that what we're going to see? I think we're going to see increased strategic activity. 
as I said, corporate confidence, cost of capital, those types, and the, the search for growth and margin improvement, that certainly will continue to drive the strategic dialogue. And it, I think we see that amongst all of our clients. The second part of the market that is important is the corporate deconsolidations, the spin-offs, for example. Last year, we saw about 400 um, billion of spin-off transactions, about 25% of the market, certainly oh. more than we've seen on average. And that's being driven by the fact that if you look across America, or across the S&P 500, rather, a, almost 30% of the multi-divisional multi companies have divisions that aren't earning their cost of capital. I think that's driving spin-off activity, that's driving corporate divestiture activity. That'll be an important part of what yeah. happens this year. And finally, you have the financial sponsor market, which in 2023 was at its lowest level since 2013 at about 535 right. billion. That market with Great stability with improvements in the high yield market, with the 1.5 trillion of cash that's dry powder that's right. available among the sponsors. That market well, is set to improve. Can you come back because you know we wanted this to be a two-hour conversation. It's a long subway ride from 388 Greenwich. It is. It's, well, are, are and you still at, the worst are you elevators? Are you downtown at Greenwich or are you at, at Midtown? Oh, we're down at. The Our worst elevators. The worst elevators on Wall Street. They are, <laughs> but, but we have some of the best people. Yes, you do. Absolutely, okay. Christina Moore of Citigroup. Thank you so much. <laughs> Let's do this again. Uh, this is a joy and an honor, and I'm going to frame this the only way I can do it. Stephen Roach of Morgan Stanley and Yale is certain I'm a fraud, <laughs> and he knows that because I'll go. Well, I just got back from China. <laughs> and my China is the airport where you go down the arrivals and there's a big Morgan Stanley banner across the top signaling Morgan Stanley's commitment to China, to the Pacific Rim. And then there's the car, usually fancy, to the Mandarin. And then there's meetings sure. in three skyscrapers. <laughs> and then I get back in the car and go back to the airport, go home. And I say, I went to China. Stephen Roach has been to China and the single sentence here, folks, off of his FT essay, uh, which was viral here, yes. it pains me to admit it, but Hong Kong is now over. Forever from Morgan Stanley and Yale University, Stephen Roach. Stephen, what a painful essay uh, to write. When was Hong Kong over? Well, it's been a gradual process, uh, Tom. <laughs> Always good to be with you, by the way. And... Uh, reminisce over the way it used to be. Um, you know, there was a lot of hand-wringing over the, um, you know, the, the, the time of the handover uh, from, uh, to uh, the PRC in 1997. And that hand-wringing was very much um, overblown at the time. I mean, Hong Kong enjoyed an extraordinary uh, burst of um, economic activity, financial market vitality, as uh, you know, the Chinese uh, growth and development story exploded. But in the last um, several years, and I guess the turning point were the massive protests and demonstrations of late 2019 that evoked a, um, a sharp uh, political response mm -hmm. from the PRC, that in conjunction with COVID, 
with the um, uh, severe structural headwinds bearing down on the Chinese economy and with the intensified conflict right. between the U.S. and China that has left Hong Kong sort of stuck right. in the crossfire, all of that has come together to really right. uh, paint a much more dire picture than uh, we'd like right. to think. Stephen, my dialogue with Chris Patton, Lord Patton, who is the British representative to this debacle, there's always been great emotion, including the day it was given up and different other signposts along the way. Can the Chinese find a middle ground? Can Beijing find a new Hong Kong that alludes to what you and Lord Patton knew? I, I think it's going to be hard to recreate um, the Hong Kong that we all loved. I mean, it, you got to be careful here. I mean, uh, I love Hong Kong. I still do. I have great friends there. I go back there a lot. Uh, I was there three times last year, even though one of the Hong Kong legislators wrote in a letter to the FT that I hadn't been there in years. Um, I've, you know, I've got great friends and contacts and a wonderful history there. But, you know, just like an investor should not be in love with a stock uh, when it reaches a valuation target. I think you got to be careful about mm. being in love with a city or a system uh, or a nation and letting that cloud your analytical assessment of um, uh, the, the, the problems. So, Stephen, I just coincidentally, I happened to be in Hong Kong the exact day that of the handover. And, um, you know, back in the day, you had if you're on Global Wall Street, you had to do a tour of duty in Hong Kong, uh, much like in the 80s, you had to do a tour of duty in, in Tokyo. Where do the Western financial institutions, how are they viewing Hong Kong going forward? Well, I think there's an understandable um, concern over the future of Hong Kong. Um, you know, my old firm, uh, Morgan Stanley, is uh, very committed to Hong Kong right now. It's the headquarters of um, the uh, Asian operations, um, excluding uh, Japan. Uh, and, and yet, you know, when you, when you go back and, and, and talk to people, at least in, in 2023, uh, they want to feel optimistic. They want to believe that Hong Kong, uh, is, um, still a sustainable platform, uh, for business, but you know, there's a nervous, they're looking over their shoulder, uh, and they live through these, uh, massive, unprecedented protests and you know they focus very much on what uh is going on in beijing and uh xi jinping's um very um tough right uh, ideologically driven uh clampdown on uh the prc and they know that it has implications for for Hong Kong as well. It's interesting, Stephen, just kind of goes to the greater issue. Um, you know, there obviously are geopolitical tensions between the West and China seemingly growing in scale, yet we still see Western business leaders going to China, uh, Tim Cook, uh, wh whoever you want, Elon Musk. It's uh, How do you think the Western corporate world is viewing greater China these days? Well, like I, I was with, you know, at the same meeting that Tim Cook was in last March when he sort of made a token appearance to the yep. China Development Forum, uh, he was in and out. It was not necessarily, you know, a man who wanted to roll up his sleeves and go to work in mm -hmm. uh, 
trying to understand what was going on in China. He did it because, as he said, when he met with the premier, uh, Apple was celebrating its 30th uh, anniversary of, of being present in China, and they right. had a major commitment to that. A few weeks later, you know, he was in India opening a new store uh, in Mumbai and talking about uh, uh, Apple's new yeah. commitment to India as well. So, you know, there's again, they're they're hedging their bets. Right, Steve, I want to talk about accidental conflict. Roach writes prolifically, folks. See, he's, he's over at Yale. Like Christina Moore's talking about Harvard yep. doing an easy A. There's no easy A at Yale. No. I mean, Roach is giving out quality C's like nobody. <laughs> Steve, you did accidental conflict, America, China, and the clash of the false narratives. And it made me think of the great Catherine Mann, now at the Bank of England, and the idea of the codependency between China and the United States. Is our codependency unchanged? How did you address that in accidental conflict? Well, I argued, Tom, that the codependency framework is still a good framework to describe uh, the relationship. But as is the case in human relationships, uh, it's a precarious uh, 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 relationship between uh, individuals and I would dare say economies. And when one partner, in this case, one economy starts to go its own way, the other feels uh, scorned and lashes back uh, and conflict emerges. And we're now in you know, what uh, psychologists who study human codependency would call the classic conflict phase of codependency. And you know that's, that's the quagmire that uh, is, is so, right. proving so difficult to climb out of. Stephen Roach, thank you for being with us today mm -hmm. to start this week off strong on a Tuesday. Stephen Roach, of course, I just can't say enough about the effort. Accidental conflict. I said it was anticipated, and yes, it was. Uh, Kirk is just, you know, within there. It, well, the Financial Times makes it a best book of the year in economics, and that's frankly to be expected from Dr. Roach. Stephen Roach of Yale University. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Lisa Mateo here with the newspapers this morning. She, her, her, they were so adult. They were so like, you know, 
go to class I at NYU or whatever. You know, I'm like, Lisa, give me something light. What do you start with this morning, Lisa? <laughs> well, we're talking about teachers. The blue teachers. button, the Detroit yes, line, the, the Detroit blue button over there. blue button, it would help. Crazy day today. Um, teachers, a lot more are taking sick days since the pandemic. So there is a shortage of substitutes, apparently. Yeah. So this is happening a lot. Okay, I'll be the evil one. Oh, Don't no, they get a sick day for three months in the summer? Well, here's the thing. They do <laughs> they get, they receive paid sick days and a small number of personal days too. Uh, but here's the thing, over 2022, 2023 in New York City, nearly one in five public school teachers, they were absent about 11 days or more. So it's increasing. That was higher from the previous year and from before the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, my daughter sees it, you know, there's yep. always, a, and it's not even because they're sick, but because someone in their family, and, like they get things to take and care it, of. And just in my town on the grounds of the high school are signs planted, substitute teachers <gasps> really? needed, you know, and I hadn't seen that before. So, um, and this is a, in, a, in a good school district. So I think it's just- the, the classwork with the substitute teacher exactly. is so successful. <laughs> exactly. I just think it's just, it just feels like people, I don't know, I think post pandemic, their work life balance has changed. And people are like- I agree. I, I just I think agree. on the balance, I'm gonna be a little bit more life, a little bit less I work. Agree. And if you're a teacher, that means- I, I mean, days. contrary to what people think, I have no social life and we're trying. <laughs> we're like forcing ourselves to get out of pandemic, like, you know, I'm in sweatpants and, you know, <laughs> Lululemon with a bow tie things all weekend. And Pants. I'm like, okay, get dressed, go out, do something. Are you still there, Lisa? Or are you like, <laughs> like about five days I'm a week? still on the thought of you and Lululemon. Yeah, <laughs> that's a tough image, right? It's, it's painful <laughs> to see. Why don't we find another theme to save the show on YouTube and Apple CarPlay? <laughs> Uh, okay, the Lerner family apparently no longer exploring a sale of the Washington Nationals. This is from Mark Lerner. He's the club's managing principal owner. He told this to the Washington Post on Monday. So apparently they came up with the decision a while ago. They say they're very happy with owning the team, bringing it back to bringing back a ring one hmm. day because they, they won the World <laughs> Series back in 2019. Um, but there's been a lot of uncertainty around it. And I'm surprised they, they took this off the market because we just saw the Baltimore Orioles trade right. uh, recently. And what we've seen in professional sports is these values continue to go higher and higher and higher. And, and it, no matter who right. you are and what franchise, there's somebody out there willing to pay a big, big yeah. number for your So I'd be surprised if they didn't get good right. interest for their team. I'm, so it's probably a family dynamic thing. Just right? quickly here, Ted Lerner, starting with $250 borrowed from his wife, I think, built the, the, the Washington real estate combine that took the Montreal Expos mm -hmm. to Washington. And the family's got a huge attachment, uh, to say the least. Yep. I guess David Rubenstein's not going to bid because you know, it's he's yours, Northwest. Yeah. And the media there is so complex. Like, I think it's I, amazing I that there. I think it's amazing that there are two, you know, there's two towns, Baltimore and Washington, literally. Yeah. 30, 40 yeah. miles apart, each have franchises. It's like and, the old days. Yeah, and football and, yeah. And, and baseball. It's just, it's amazing yeah. how the leagues allow yeah. that, but it works. Next. All right. Uh, do you remember the Salt Bay? You know, the one who does this over the, you got to look this, on YouTube. But that's yes. in London, in the steakhouse yes, or something? correct. Okay. The steakhouse in London. He does that little viral sprinkling across the steaks. He has his own restaurant there. So you know that energy prices are sky high over in the UK. So this is just an example of how much of reality this set in. Yeah. That restaurant, it's become, you know, popular, but 
they are turning off their central heating after closing during peak hours when heating demand is lower and they're turning off lights oh, during closing hours. So they're trying to penny pinch, I guess, every well, this is in the park, the, price the park tower cheap. hotel in Nightbridge, right. which, which Tom is familiar with yeah. because they have the 680 pound Wagyu strip loin or the 630 pound giant tomahawk steak. It's great. All over that. Time. Yeah, it is. Well, I go to Rules. You know, yep. I, I, I sit at Francine Lacroix and I have a table at Rules right <laughs> by the window. We look back and I've actually sat at the James Bond table at Rules where they filmed one of the movies. And that's like authentic. Like it's the stuff is tasteless. I mean, Francine's chowing it down. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it's like just too much of cuisine over there. It's too rich for me. Yeah. And, and all that. But. The heating bills, John Farrell's been really, really articulate on this. It's not like America. There's some real hardship there yep. in families' utility bills. It is. It is. It's, it's, it's amazing. And uh, but the economy there uh, is just not yeah. picked up like we have here in the U.S. Well, to say the least. Future's negative 16. Lisa Mateo, thank you uh, so much, is there. Did you see she hasn't worn her Yankees jacket since Pitchers <laughs> and Catchers? We're waiting for gotta, opening gotta, day. Her daughter start. has it. <laughs> yep. Is absconded. I'm looking at rules right here. Okay, lots of stars there, Tom. Yeah, lots of stars. Yeah, Maiden Lane know, in London. Lots of stars. They treat me wonderful. Oldest restaurant in London. It served traditional British. I walk food. in and they make a you know, make a Dickensian sure. swirl, and then Francine walks in and it's like the place oh, stops. stops. Of course. Oh my God, it's Francine Lacroix. <laughs> I don't even exist. That's it. Rules. You have a window Good. seat. We'll Francine do that. Sits right, we'll do that next time. It's it's uh, you know it's like on. Unedible. <laughs> they have a cocktail bar upstairs that's literally out of the movies. <laughs> Rules in London is uh, something to try once. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, bringing you the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Visit the Bloomberg Podcast channel on YouTube to see the show weekday mornings from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern from our global headquarters in New York City. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.